systemic racism, the idea that our institutions are plagued with policies that systemically exclude black people by design from employment, from enjoying conceptions of the good life is a bunch of malarkey. We, we are beginning to see a form of systemic racism in America, but it's through the diversity, equity, and inclusion policy initiatives. And so we are seeing systemic racism in America, but it's a systemic racism against whites, especially heterosexual white males. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is Ricky Allpark. Ricky, I have a question for you. So let's just assume... Oh, how are you, Ricky? Are you good? Yes, I'm good. Yeah, good. Anyway. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, let's just say, you know, you had done something to me in the past and I didn't like that. And then, you know, I was like, maybe you just give me 50 bucks and then it'll be it'll be good. Would you Would you give me the 50 bucks? Oh, I don't know. It depends on, on what did I do to you? Killed my family and enslaved me. Well, some would say you were a conquered person and you should just deal with it. <laughs> well, that's a bitter pill to swallow. I was expect. I think you should just give me fifty bucks. But um, anyway, that is a lead into today's show. We are uh, having a return guest, uh, Jason Hill, to talk about. We, we talk. It was a wide ranging. Just going to be talked about Chicago, a little bit yeah. of reparations. We we'll get into crime, the national security threat that is the humanities in twenty twenty three. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, so um, get your popcorn. Jason D. Hill is a poet, novelist, and professor of philosophy, specializing in the areas of ethics, political philosophy, moral psychology, American politics, and foreign policy. He has published works in The Federalist, The American Mind, The American Thinker, Commentary Magazine, and our favorite, Spiked Magazine. He has also authored several books, including What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression, and the best-selling We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. Jason first spoke to us in August 2022. That was episode 142. Uh, Jason, welcome back to the New Flesh. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So since we're talking about the US today, Jason, we might as well begin at the top with the White House. Uh, just today, I heard Joe Biden's press secretary say the following. This is from Jean-Pierre herself. She says, quote, for the first time in history, the cabinet is majority female. For the first time in history, a majority of White House senior staff identif- identify uh, that identify is female is and a record seven assistants to the president are LGBTQ plus close quote. Now this isn't the, this isn't the first time that she's extolled the racial and sexual makeup of the White House. Do you, do you, do you have a view on on this? You must have heard this coming from the White House more than once. So what, what's your view on this? My view is so what? I mean that's part of the problem is that this emphasis on race and sexual orientation is is part of the tribalization and the balkanization of of the U.S. government. I mean, uh, and it's also a ruse to sort of bring in a kind of L- a radical LGBTQ plus plus, whatever those placemakers stand for, agenda into the White House. Um, I can bet that the ideological diversity that should come with a diverse White House is not there. That they're they're ideologically identical. That is, they're that the far left agenda that is running amok in the White House and that the so-called diversity which speaks to racial and 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 LGBTQ diversity adheres to a very, very strict political ideology. And we we have Joe Biden who is very much an advocate of so-called gender affirming care, which is nothing more than a license 
for a plethora of abhorrent policies, which include endorsing and allowing schools to do all sorts of things behind the backs of parents, such as um, dispensing the antidepressants, authorizing, you know, the, initiating, um, uh, let's, let me be mild here, just initiating the beginnings of um, gender uh, sur surgeries to uh, remove body parts from, from, from young people. So I, I take this to not necessarily be a good thing. So what if it's a, a bunch of females? This is part of the problem that our educational system is is run by what I call a gynocentric paradigm. We're, we're seeing the feminine, this overly feminization of the administration of our educational system, which comes at the expense of, of, of men. And um, this whole country is becoming overly feminized and our educational system is becoming overly feminized and, and running amok by a radical LGBTQ agenda where you have, you know, drag story queen, drag story hours where I have nothing against drag queens, but it's a staple of gay male culture. They belong in in, in, gay, in gay clubs, not in the classroom. So this valorization and this whole sort of celebration of people of color and, and LGBTQ people, um, I think is quite superficial. I think the deeper question is to ask, and, and what's behind the policies? What's behind the policies of these people, these diverse, so-called diverse groups of people? And what you'll find is something that's quite often nefarious and um, not conducive to liberty and freedom, but, but something that is far left, radical, and has a Marxist orientation behind them that is behind these policies. The, the press secretary herself is an interesting case. And now I, sh I shouldn't pick on her because she's really just, you know, they change every few months, really. But uh, I don't know if she's the best um, advertisement for affirmative action or the, or the positives of affirmative action because she's, frankly, not very good at her job. She can't even stand at the lectern properly. She leans on it like she's working at Starbucks or something. Like, it's... it's um. Uh, and she she has gaffes a um, hundred times a day, awkward, totally out of her depth. Now, uh, and this will come up in our discussion of, of uh, the Chicago leadership as well. But is it will it ever be okay to criticise her on on uh, on her work without being accused of being? Uh, I guess in her case, I'd be what racist, um, a bigot because she's LGBTQ and whatever else. So, what do you think? No, it won't. And it's the same thing with our vice president, Kamala Harris, who is the most probably, I would say, incompetent. I've lived in America for 38 years and I, I came here when I was 20. I would say this is the, probably the most incompetent vice president that I've ever seen to hold the office of, vice, of the vice presidency in 38 years. Who happens to be a woman of color? She might have been a, a quite competent um, attorney general when she held that office, but she's certainly a very incompetent vice president. And this is exactly what happens when a president or, or uh, a cap, when he was running for the presidency says, I'm going to choose a woman of color. And he happened to choose a woman of color who happened to be very, very incompetent. And you get you get accused of not just being a misogynist, but being this, this new word that they've coined, misogynoir, which I'm sure you've heard. Misogynoir. No, I've never heard that. Oh, it's when you love a criticism against a woman of color because she is a woman of color. Um, so it's a sort of neologism that these people make up. 
So no, you this is and this is how the inocu this is how the far left really inoculates itself against any kind of criticism is that if you pick someone of color and you pick that person happens to be a woman, incidentally, and you criticize that person for the quality of work that she's doing, um, built into the structure of the of the narrative comes with it the accusation of of racism because obviously you must be a racist if the person is picked it means the person is automatically qualified because you're questioning the judgment of the person who appointed that that individual and that individual would not have picked the person unless he she were qualified but we know by their performance that they're not qualified so therefore you're a bigot you're a racist you're a misogynist and a mis misogynoir and uh, i think it's a very very sad day when we can't look at people as individuals and say, regardless of your color or your sexual orientation, you're just an incompetent. And in certain cases, um, like Jean-Pierre, you're just, you, you come close to being a very articulate village idiot, actually, I would say. Uh, well, we spoke to Norman Fickelstein recently about his new book, and he has a lengthy chapter on Barack Obama. And he said, basically, in the US, you, you cannot criticize Barack Obama. Um, and we've been talking about him a little bit recently on on the show. We'd love to get your assessment of Barack Obama. Well, I voted for Barack Obama the first time um, that he ran. I like a lot of Americans. I was very, very hopeful that he was uh, he, he was spreading hope and that he was going to do a, a better job of of uniting the races. Uh, racial relationships were improving. I did not vote for him the second time, and I'll tell you why. I thought that his foreign policy was horrific. He here was someone who was going around the world um, on an apology tour, pandering to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, that horrific tour, speak that he, speech that he gave in Egypt, um, bowing before these Saudi princes in a sort of obsequious, like an obsequious babbit um, before the, the Saudi princes, and basically apologizing for American exceptionalism and also talking about leading from behind and soft power, and then also racializing a lot of issues in America. I thought his, 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 I do not think he was good for race relations in America. I think race relations actually deteriorated under his presidency because everything became racialized, sort of what we're seeing on, under his little um, puppet, Joe Biden, where everything becomes racialized, where the left creates race, racism, where there is no racism, and creates racial divisions among the races and between the races. And I was very, very disappointed in his foreign policy and the way in which I think he sort of uh, uh, drew attention to or, or created racial conversations when there need not have been any any, any sort of racial conversations. Um, I happen to be a, a, a sort of moderate conservative, except in the realm of foreign policy, where I'm sort of a hawk. And I, 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 I have begun to criticize Obama retrospectively, looking back at some of his policies um, when he sort of made statements which would seem to have indicted white Americans and this country as being in some sense intrinsically bigoted and ineradicably not just evil but biased. And, uh, and I think that's just false. I think that's to indict the majority of white Americans on, on, that, on those grounds are both empirically false and also strategically just bad for a country that is trying its best, I think, to get along uh, in certain areas. So I think that 
Barack Obama started out as a sort of shining knight of hope and descended into something that was quite, I think he was a mediocre president. I don't think he did anything for the black community that was special. I don't think he did anything special for America besides giving a lot of very um, uh, wonderful speeches in the beginning that became quite formulaic and predictable in the end and that were filled with uh, cliches and bromides and quite platitudinous speeches that didn't impress me or a lot of people who saw right through them in the end. Absolutely fascinating to, to hear all of that about. Uh, we just love to hear it because, you know, he's a, he is a, a, a saintly figure. Uh, he's entering that, that sort of Marilyn Monroe uh, area where you can't, you know, sort of, um, <laughs> you can't say anything <laughs> critical. So I'd love to hear all of that as, as counterpoint. But let's go a little bit closer to uh, your home, if I'm correct. There's been a leadership change in Chicago, uh, which we'd like to get your thoughts on. But but first, but perhaps you could just tell us about Chicago and what it's like to live there. I mean, you, you could, uh, I'm assuming your work is, is there, but uh, there are many places to live in the US and you live in Chicago. So maybe just give us a little intro there and we'll move on to uh, uh, Mayor Lightfoot. Well, I've lived here for 23 years because um, when I got my PhD, um, I, I first lived in Southern Illinois um, and then I was at Cornell for a year. And I've been in Chicago for 23 years where I teach at DePaul. It's it's not the place that I lived 23 years ago where crime was, was um, worrisome, but it's become almost, I would say, very, very uninhabitable in certain neighborhoods. I live in one of the Shishi upper scale neighborhoods on the north side of Chicago, which has become um, quite horrific. I mean, I would not walk in my neighborhood at, at night. And, and like I said, it's a very upscale, um, expensive neighborhood. It's quite close to the university. Um, and this has come in the wake of the George Floyd killing and, uh, and talk of defunding the police. Uh, we have the proliferation of gangs uh, in the neighborhoods now. And um, we did have a mayor who had a very contentious Lori Lightfoot, who did have, a, who was, by the way, let me say, by the way, who was voted in 2019, I believe, overwhelmingly by white progressives. I mean, she was a fo- almost like treated like royalty by these white progressives, these white ultra left liberals who voted her into power and also independents and a few conservatives who wanted to sort of virtue signal that they were not racist. And I don't think they were. People just believed in her and believed that given the history of corruption um, that governed this, this city for decades, um, wanted a change. And she I don't think that she is at heart a, a corrupt mayor. She's not a corrupt person at heart. I think she's guilty, and I've said this several times, of dereliction of duty. Um, and began to, I think, fall in line with some of the more left-wing progressive movements that were calling for defunding of the police, um, replacing police services with social programs, and began to sound more like a sociologist than a mayor, like we have to start start thinking about why there are gangs and why there are uh, so many, the statistics in, in crimes among certain demographic groups are so high and started sounding like a sociology professor. Well, there are many, many answers to this, but these people are threats and we need to have them removed from civilized society. 
And so it's good that she was voted out. Uh, the, the, the two other candidates, uh, one uh, sounds more is, is, is left of, 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 of Lightfoot and is a big advocate of defunding the police. But Chicago is a beautiful city. It's a magnificent city. It's, it's, it's lovely. It has a lot to offer. It has a lot of culture. It's a great a food uh, a place for, uh, for uh, culinarily speaking, um, in terms of theater and music. It's wonderful, but it's it's a crime-infested city. I mean, I wrote a letter to President Trump, which went viral, and I was on several media outlets asking him to um, suspend com- um, um, the rules governing um, bringing in forces and to 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 have boots on the ground to bring in the military into these areas, um, and to to help the local police by bringing in the military into these areas to wipe out the gangs. He did subsequently. I think he read my letter and he heard me. And the mayor refused. She said, "We don't need your help." And that's how bad the situation really really is in Chicago in terms of crime. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. Well, we've heard the city referred to as Chirac. Have you heard this term? Oh, yes. It's not, hyper, it's not hyperbolic. I mean, people get killed so often, especially young children, by these violent gang members that they're not even report. It doesn't even make the main news item anymore. I mean, you just sort of hear this in passing at the close of a news story. And by the way, uh, 55 people over the weekend were killed in Chicago. That's sort of like the end of a, end of a new cycle that, that you will hear this if you hang on long enough uh, to listen to the news. But it's, it's, so, it's so bad that it's not really newsworthy anymore. And the issue, too, is that it's not just on a particular uh, part of the city. It's proliferating and, and it's all pervasive. It's in every neighborhood in Chicago now. Uh, is afflicted with with these this this sort of crime wave. Just just as a short aside, have you seen the Spike Lee film of the same name, Chirac, which I believe came out in in twenty fifteen? No, I have not. I haven't seen it. Yet. Well, I should see it. we 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 watched it, and so it got us thinking about about Chicago. And uh, one of the theses in the film is, I mean, it's a an adaptation of a of a Greek play, basically the 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 uh, Lysistrata, I think, uh, is the and so the the women stage a um, a sex strike in order to get the gang members to stop fighting, and um, it sounds charming, but it is it is spikely, so it's 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 sort of like you know fairly serious, and um, one of the the the, the Things that they that they say is at the end they want um, uh, mental health facilities, they want um, you know uh, infrastructure, jobs for everyone. So they they're, they're coming at it from that, and that's sort of where we come to at the end. Do you, do you think that that is you know where the problem lies? Um, well, I think partially. I think I think the the mayor of Florida, his I can't remember his name right now, um, has done a magnificent job in showing that. Miami is one of the happiest cities in the country because they have opened up, unlike Chicago, where where citizens are leaving in droves because of the crime, um, the mayor of Miami says that, you know, he has spent his time convincing investors to stay, investing companies to stay, um, making conditions for 
investing possible so that there are more jobs available. See, part of the problem in Chicago is that you have something like 26,000 people a year leaving. You have more businesses leaving. And so with these vacancies, uh, there is mass unemployment among certain demographic groups, and they, of course, turn to crime. So I do think that before we even talk about mental health, we need to talk about why are people fleeing the city? It's like if you have a restaurant that's infested with cockroaches and you have another restaurant where people take pride in their in their business and they clean it up. I mean, are you going to be surprised if the patrons are leaving the cockroach-infested uh, restaurant? Well, so Chicago has become like the equivalent. The analog here is that Chicago has become like a cockroach-infested city. It's filled with criminals and gangs, and there's no one that's doing the really, really hard work, neither the governor nor the mayor, in terms of incentivizing either the police, law enforcement, or business. Uh, Chicago businesses are taxed at an unprecedented rate. Um, so who could blame them? There's no incentive for them to stay because they can easily go to Tennessee or to Nevada or to other states where the tax rates are very low. So I was very, very struck. I listened very clear, carefully to the mayor of Miami where, you know, we said we have lower taxes for small businesses. It's very easy for small businesses to start up in Miami. Um, uh, and so with that, there is access to employment among low-income or unemployed people. And so the, the crime rate has, has gone down significantly in Miami. And in certain sections of Miami where the crime rate was unprecedentedly high, um, so that I think we need to start talking about before we begin psychologizing people and start talking about, you know, um, mental health issues. People are suffering, I think, a lot of from mental health issues because they live they live lives of quiet despair because they have no jobs and because they have no way of providing for their families. Um, and rather than start speaking like sociologists, we need to start thinking pragmatically and, and thinking about, well, how can we get the best of our people, the entrepreneurs, the businessmen and women, to stay in Chicago and to invest in Chicago and to incentivize them to invest in communities that are ravaged by crime um, to, 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 to gent and also to gentrify these areas uh, that are good for everyone in the long run. So turning back to Laurie Lightfoot uh, for a second, what, how, how would you describe her time in office? What what would she be rem remembered for in addition to being the first, and this ties into my, one of my first questions, a lot of the stories led with she's the first black woman and gay mayor of Chicago. So, you know, here we have another, uh, someone who's leading with identity politics and yet um, has been bounced out in, in a single term, which is... Which is uh, that's probably more historic than than some of the other things, um, but but because when I, whenever I seem to tune into her, I, I the things that stuck out to me was I, I'm fairly certain she did a section of of uh, or a range of press uh, junkets where she wouldn't allow white reporters to speak and only ex accepted questions from from reporters of color. So this is the stuff that seemed to stick out to me along with the high, the murder rate. I mean, what's your view, Jason? My view is that she is a supercilious, which is, she's an arrogant, supercilious, foul-mouthed woman who has a proclivity for picking fights with the wrong kinds of people. She's extremely arrogant and um, history will remember her as someone who did, along with Governor Pritzker, who did not do a really good job at handling COVID well. I mean, I remember 
during COVID where the beaches were closed, where as in Florida, the beaches were open. You, there's no evidence that suggests that in an open beach, open air space, you can contract COVID. So we had, we were, I remember COVID because I was locked in my house for at least two months. It was miserable. It was horrible. And there were these kids who were playing on basketball courts, teenagers, and she went around with a bullhorn. And rather than going up to these kids and saying, how are you doing? How are you coping with the, with, with the, with the pandemic, with the lockdowns? She shouted at them and she bellowed. This is how history is going to remember this, this supercilious woman. Go home. Get out. Get out. Get away. Go home. Go home. This is not, what, this is not leadership. And she rode around in her, in her car with this bullhorn. And anyone she saw in the streets, in an open air space, she would shout out, go home, get off the streets now, go home. Not getting out and talking with these young people, many of whom were legitimately suffering from mental health crises. These are teenagers who are used to running in packs, who are pack animals, and especially teenagers. Um, so I don't think history is going to remember her kindly at all. I think she's going to be remembered as someone who picked a lot of fights with the wrong people who handled the COVID situation very poorly and who um, acted as if she, I would just say the word, as, as some sort of racist, um, as you said, you know, um, expelling white reporters from the room. I mean, this is, this is can you imagine if a, a black, a white report, a white mayor did this? It's unacceptable. It's unspeakably wrong. Um, but she got away with it only because she's a black lesbian mayor uh, who can do this sort of thing uh, and her sole motive, I think, was to leverage her power and her authority uh, in a way that benefited her only. And um, I'm just relieved that um, she's no longer the mayor. And the, the idea, you know, when she lost, that she said, well, I'm a black woman in America. Well, you're a black woman in America who, was, who won an election four years ago overwhelmingly um, because you're because you're a black lesbian woman in America. So how did it, how did in four years time, the, your very supporters just suddenly become what anti uh, anti gay or homophobic and and racist and turn against you? No, they turned against you because you committed a dereliction of duty because you were an incompetent mayor, and you didn't do your job and you left most Chicagoans feeling very very unsafe in their homes because you couldn't establish a proper relationship with the police, with law enforcement, because you made them feel very small and demeaned and emasculated. Well, this this claim that, that uh, you know, her reign was ended because of sexism and, 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 and racism, how long will this claim have purchased in the US, do you think? No, I think people are going to see through this. I mean, people are becoming sick and tired of, basing, of blaming systemic racism on, on everything. I think dare I say that systemic racism, the idea that our institutions are plagued with policies that systemically exclude black people by design from employment, from con enjoying conceptions of the good life, is a bunch of malarkey. We, we are beginning to see a form of systemic racism in America, but I know I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for saying this, but it's through the diversity, equity, and inclusion policy initiatives. And so we are seeing systemic racism in America, but it's a systemic racism against whites, especially heterosexual white males. Um, I knew it. I knew there was a conspiracy against me, Jason. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. When you look at the diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, right, 
and uh, and you see how they function in workplaces, there is a new type of systemic racism. Um, I work in academia, and I've been in academia for 26 years now. I've sat on committees, and I've heard people say, we can't hire this person as qualified as he is because we've got too many white people here, and this person has two master's degrees, fluent in five languages, but we'll pick a, we'll pick a black person or we'll pick a person of color uh, who's much less qualified. So God help you if you're a very, very talented Asian or a very talented white person who's overly qualified in education in many, many fields. Um, so that's, that's a new form of systemic racism that is taking place. But the idea that systemic America is systemically racist. I mean, there are racists in this country, in America, as there are, there are psychotic fools. And you cannot ban racism in the sense that you can't ban people from holding those sorts of beliefs. But we do have the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its attendant clauses that make racism illegal. So there is no such thing as systemic policies. I mean, you can you can get in, you can you, you can be sued. It's it's illegal. You can actually go to jail if in some cases. So the idea that there is systemic racism in this country, policies that systematically exclude quite the opposite. What we are seeing is that, especially in the realm of education, if you are a person of color. With a, and I've seen this with a C average and a B average, there is no progressive university in this country, in America, that will not send a jet plane for you and fly you out and give you a scholarship. If you're a trans lesbian, oh, oh, it's it's it's, it's it won't be a seven four seven, but you know it's 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 royalty treatment. If you're a Native American trans person, oh. Harvard is waiting for you, okay? So this is a bunch of malarkey. Um, and institutions are just looking to diversify and diversify and diversify. So uh, I think most Americans are becoming very, very resentful about being called bigoted and racist when, when you look at the landscape, what you see is a tendency to diversify over and over again the workspaces and the workforces in this country. And we're inversely seeing a new kind of systemic racism that I've just identified, which I think we must have a conversation about because I think that sort of racism against whites that we are seeing now is, is fomenting. It's going to cause a lot of resentment and hostility. I would like to have a conversation about it. I would like to initiate a conversation. It's very real. Um, it's it's still not you know widespread. I mean, the major CEOs are still whites, and we're, we're talking about um, <clears throat> just your average white person who's applying for a job um, in middle management and so on and so forth, or your average academic or person, or just, just your average person um, in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion faces a tough, a tough, a tough, a tough road ahead. Jason, just just before we move on from this topic, I feel like the the narrative about people like Laurie Lightfoot have uh, that she's gone with and everything they've missed a trick here because everyone seems to go, um, you know, in in essence, she she was uh, had an incredible uh, like landslide or came in you know with on, on on a high and started from from zero or or even ahead, and then totally blew it over over a few years how is that not um evidence that uh, that there is a, a great leveler in america and that now she's i think that, that that 
it's not really about uh, race or gender. It's that she's a mediocrity, and and pl- and plenty of people. And and the great thing about you know America is that there's um you know everyone's given this opportunity, and um she like other people of all different races is a mediocrity. So and and isn't and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that 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 there that there was no racism and sexism. That she was treated like because some people from the left always go on about mediocre white men, and she and you go well, Laurie Lightfoot is is an example of someone who's who's a mediocrity as well, don't you think? This is a this is this is the thing. They're used to be the they're used to be saying that in order to be to be to be black and to make it. I think Condoleezza Rice said it, and there's a book. On Condoleezza Rice, called a biography called Twice as Good. Condoleezza Rice often said, in order to make it as a black person, you have to be twice or three times as good as your average white person. This is a sort of progress that we have made in America that to make it into positions of leadership, um, you can be just as mediocre now as any kind of white person. What progress we have made, right? That people will look past your race, look past your sexual orientation, and actually vote you into a power based on your mediocre performance. I mean, look at, again, look at Kamala Harris. Joe Biden won the presidency, um, floating along, you know, with 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 wings, angelic wings. I mean, I call it the whole thing was virtue signaling, uh, with a with a mediocre um, vice presidential candidate along his side who behaved in a manner that would not suggest that she w- was performing with any kind of degree of excellence at all. And um, for all practical purposes, is going to run with Kamala Harris again as his vice president. Um, and uh, is, a mediocre, is a mediocre vice president, just like Lori Lightfoot. So one doesn't have to be twice as good anymore. One just has to sort of have the right um, set of immutable characteristics and um, and this is progress in one way, in the sense that one doesn't really um, have to work, have to be twice as good. That Americans are willing to say, well, you know, if we can have a mediocre president, well, we can also have a mediocre black person in that same position of of authority and power. So there are really no excuses anymore because um, the the mountains. The shrines have not been raised. What we've done is just we've just enshrined mediocrity across the board, and that that enshrinement of mediocrity also just includes people of color, as well. Well, something that's that's related uh, is the reparations debate, which seems to be gathering steam uh, with city uh, with a city appointed panel in uh, I believe San Francisco recommending that black citizens res, uh, receive a guaranteed annual income of uh, $97,000 and the option to purchase homes for $1 a family. Um, now, there's there's so many questions around the logistics of a scheme like this, but what, what jumps out to me immediately is, I guess, the, the, the fantastical amount of money being recommended here. I, I'm not sure anyone except the most extreme advocates of reparations would be on board with this. What's what's your take on the proposal by, by San Francisco uh, reparations panel and 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 what are your thoughts on on reparations in general? Well, you know, I've written a book on it, an entire book called "What Do White Americans Owe Black People: Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression." And uh, you know, I I didn't just say reparations are wrong. I I systematically laid out the case for why I think reparations are um, both materially or uh, logistically untenable, but also why ethically I think it's it's problematic. And uh, so I think. The, the plan that 
one sees being laid out in California is 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 problematic from a sort of logistical point of view. But I, I'm an ethicist by training, and I like to look at things from a moral standpoint. And I think that, um, so besides the logistical plan, which would be very difficult to sort of, how are you going to realize this? How are you going to sort of, un- how is this going to unfold? I want to talk about the ethical part of it. I mean, um, I, I do think in some sense that um, the the whole idea of punish, of of reparations is problematic from many, many perspectives. One is that I think that tracing all kinds of disparities between the races today based on the residual effects of slavery um, is a very, very difficult thing to prove. Um, I believe that if one can show, as has been the case in the states of Mississippi, and I think South Carolina, where there have been cases that families have been deprived on the Jim Crowism of generationally passing on land to their families, that restitution or reparations are absolutely appropriate. So there's a family in Mississippi that had a, a lot of land um, right after slavery. And because of the nefarious and pernicious laws um, under Jim Crowism, the state withheld their land for decades and no reparations, they're being given reparations. I think that is laudable. I think that is proper. This idea that somehow en masse all blacks, just because their ancestors were slaves, um, are due reparations is very problematic for, for the simple reason that the majority of whites in America today, their ancestors, um, came over after uh, the Civil War. They, they were, their ancestors were not slaveholders, so the idea of collective guilt is problematic. If you're going to go the route of punishing people because they hold white privilege, well, that's even more nefarious because if someone has immutable characteristics and one of those immutable characteristics is that they have white skin and that white skin confers certain benefits, well, I don't know what they're supposed to do about it short of entreating them not to use their white skin to eviscerate non-whites of their dignity. How can you punish someone for holding an immutable characteristic that they had nothing to do with and you would have to empirically show that that white privilege is involved in the oppression of either all black people or particular black people, which I'm going to think like a social scientist here is going to be very, very difficult to prove. And so the assumptions that one has to presuppose are the assumptions that underlie the whole reparations movement are very, very, very problematic. And I would say that reparations have been paid. That is the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the attendant clauses and the affirmative action programs um, that followed the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the granting of, let's say, something like Black Studies programs, I argue, forms of cultural reparations. Anything short of that in a free society really begins to trespass on the freedoms and liberties of a free people. Um, it begins to look like fiscal appropriation in a manner that a free society simply cannot tolerate. Centuries after the abolition of slavery to sort of start taxing people 
because that's the way they're going to have to do it through taxation to reward punitive to to, to in the name of punitive damages um, reward people whose ancestors were slaves. Um, it seems very very unethical because the people living today who are held accountable for the deeds that their ancestors committed. Um, are just not responsible. And let's just use an inverse example. What if, so blacks commit, blacks constitute about 11 to 12% of the population, but commit a disproportionate number of crimes in America. What if someone were to say, well, I wasn't born here, but let's just say I, were, I was born in America and someone were to say, Jason, you know, you're black and, and members of your race commit about 40% of the crimes committed, more than that, 40% of the crimes committed in America. So we're going to levy a tax, a racial tax, to um, ameliorate the damages done to white people based on the race of your your racial compatriots. Look at how horrific that would be, and look at how racist that would be. So I think when you when you look at it in terms of the assumptions or the presuppositions that undergird reparations policy, the thinking that has to be done. It's quite problematic. Look, we, we simply have to move on. Slavery was a horrific thing. But also, as I argue in my book, 90% of the slave, and this is, this is the point I need to make, and I have to make it very quickly, 90% of the slave trade was facilitated by Black Africans. Um, black Africans and white European uh, traders and Arab traders and Black Africans, among those three groups, without them, the slave trade would not have been possible. And nobody wants to talk about this. So why aren't we talking about reparations from sub-Saharan African countries since they were just as complicit in facilitating the slave trade as were European traders, right? So this whole notion of reparations being solely the responsibility of, of, of Europeans is a bunch of malarkey. It's, it was facilitated by 90%, even one of our best historians, Henry Louis Gates, who's a Harvard academician in the, in the English Afro-American department made this point in the New York Times. He said, I reluctantly, I must say that 90% of the slave trade was facilitated by other Africans. So I think there comes a point where we just, we have to move on because it seems rather punitive than it seems a form of justice. Yeah. Well, I, I'm interested. Um, do, you, do you think this scheme will expand to include people of color that have no ties to the slave trade? I mean, you you are a person of color, although you come from Jamaica. Would you be able to, do you think that people will argue that you would be able to line up for reparations? Well, right now, that's, that's, prob that's a very contentious issue. I think that the way that identity politics plays itself out, um, the idea is going to be yes, because if you look at the construction of whiteness, this whole notion of whiteness and the movement to abolish whiteness. Um, so whiteness is, is seen by people like Frank Wilderson and, and, and others who, who are part of the white abolitionist movement to abolish whiteness. Whiteness is seen as um, a disease. It's seen as a category. It's seen as an identity that has a number of characteristics affixed to it. And one of the characteristics affixed to it is that it is oppressive by definition. It is um, exploitative by definition. And so anyone, including one can imagine the argument being made, including an immigrant such as myself, who 
labors under the aegis of whiteness is going to be due some kind of reparation. So one would say that I voluntarily came to America 38 years ago, but I still am forced, just for argument's sake, and this is not my argument uh, emphatically, but one could say I am forced to still labor under the uh, ages of, of, of whiteness and inescapably so. So therefore I'm entitled to reparations because I'm bound by an oppressive, exploitative system um, which incidentally has to be also to do with capitalism because whiteness is also associated with the bureaucracy or the system that makes it possible, which is called, they call it um, race capitalism. So I think the nasty nature of identity politics is such that you're going to see groups like immigrant groups um, who heretofore usually stay outside of identity politics clamoring for reparations because, again, the way these idea pathogens and identity politics, I think, um, is an idea pathogen, the way it manifests itself, are so infectious and they speak to the lowest common denominator in people, that people who heretofore would not have wanted anything to do with reparations are going to be sort of seduced into thinking that they are deserving of reparations because they they are subject to governance under this thing called whiteness and white capital, race capitalism, when it is capitalism that has brought them where they are. So I, I do think that I wouldn't be surprised, given the nature of identity politics and given the rapidity with which this rep, these reparations claims. I made this prediction about seven years ago. I said reparations is going, when I was doing the research for the book, I said reparations is going to be coin of the realm in the mouth of everyone, uh, meaning those, when I said everyone, not in every, every, every person, but meaning those who are advocates of this sort of thing. It's going to be the biggest talking point in about seven years' time. And my predictions were right. I mean, it's and it's only going to get worse. I think, um, especially in the twenty twenty four elections, with the um, where what was a fringe topic is now going to become normalized and mainstreamed um, in American society. Well, on a personal level, Jason, if there is cash going, I hope you get some. Just that's just, but that but that aside, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, you deserve some. I would. Re- I would refuse it on, princ- on absolute principle. I would not take a dime. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's good to hear. We're just trying to look out for you. So uh, the um, – <laughs> but we're interested – we talk about this, uh, you know, uh, this topic because it's, 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 it's so fascinating. We're interested in the uh, – let's just say – reparations or a kind of reparations happen like something that that, like what ricky outlined earlier for some of those people who get that figure or whatever what happens the next day these people what happens the next day is that well the idea okay so so, see the whole idea behind reparations is this this fantasy this utopianistic idea that they're going to invest in communities right that they're going to sort of take that money and what has become an obsolescence, which is communities have become obsolete, that there's no such thing as that the, the black community is in disrepair, that um, and that 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 wealth is is fragmented, and that the hope is that the reparations will lead to something like a rebuilding of the black community. I'll tell you what will happen. Um, some people are going to take that money and wisely spend it on their children and their children's education. Some people are going to take the money and they're going to flee to other states. 
Uh, some people are going to take the money and they're going to buy a Cadillac. Um, some people are people are going to do different things. But the idea that somehow um, a thriving, enterprising black community is going to emerge from a reparations movement that is somehow, let's say, analogous to like a thriving Jewish community or an Asian community, I think is just not going to happen. Um, and that's, I think people should just terminate the fantasy right there. That is, um, it, 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 blacks are going to use this money. Some will use it wisely and some will use it foolishly. And it's not up to the government to stipulate how you can use the money. But I think the hope is that, and, and the advocates of reparations, because I've heard some of them talk on TV and I've read some of their writings, is that the hope is that somehow it will foster and a particular ethos of accountability and responsibility to build thriving black communities where products like so like sort of the re-emergence of a sort of black nationalistic ethos by black create black can, can invest in black i don't think that's going to happen i think people should just terminate that fantasy right now um blacks are going to be individualistic in the way that they utilize their money they're not going to live in all black neighborhoods. They're not going to do utopianistic things with, with their dollars. They're going to act like atomistic individuals and, uh, and run with the money and do to what they want to do with the money. Now, while we still have you for a little bit here, Jason, we'd love to get your thoughts on academia. Uh, you, you've been a professor for almost 30 years, so you're eminently qualified to make a comment uh, what is the state of the humanities in U.S. colleges in, in 2023? Oh, they're horrific. Our universities have become cults. Let me just say that. They have become cults. They have become national security threats. And it's getting worse. I mean, from, I don't know where to start, but let me try to put some systematicity to my, to my thoughts here. Um, they are again, indoctrination centers where they have been hijacked by very, very far left. Um, not even, I would say, two years ago, I would have said the professoriate. I can't say it's a professoriate anymore. It's a, it's a bloated totalitarian bureaucracy. Um, the administrators really run the shots. They have become very, very um, woke and, 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 and hijacked and by this nihilistic left-wing Marxist ideology, which is really hell-bent on changing the political DNA of America and turning it into a socialist country. The universities have become the vehicles, the incubation centers in which to do this. So when 70%, according to a lot of polls that are taken by, um, what do you, how do, what's the word I'm looking for, by um, non-bias, no, um, Non-political, non-partisan, non non thank you, non-partisan um, centers, think tanks that show that 70% of college students um, are either in favor of socialism, in favor of, of abolishing the Constitution, modifying the Constitution, bringing the Constitution up to 2023 terms, which means in some sense um, getting rid of the First Amendment, which is getting rid of free speech or modifying free speech, which means getting rid of hate speech as being protected, you see that the humanities have uh, done their, their job. 
um, it's becoming increasingly worse in the sense that um, there are no opportunities for counterfactuals or rejoinders against this radical left-wing agenda. If you hold not even just a con- not even let's say a conservative viewpoint, if you just hold a viewpoint that challenges the orthodoxy or the received wisdom that has come to govern the humanities, you'll be fired. And we see this every day. Uh, today, uh, yesterday, there was a professor who was fired because he didn't believe, I can't remember his name, but it's probably best because because I think he might, although it was public, these professors don't want their names banded about, but he was fired because he rejected the notion that that America was a systemically racist country against blacks, and he was, he was outright fired. Um, I have a good friend um, who's worked for 30 years. He's a brilliant psychologist. Um, his name, I know he wants his name mentioned, so his name is Charles Nagy, Nagy. And he was fired for a year and a half. He was just reinstated a couple of weeks ago from his university, University of Central Florida, uh, because he questioned the morality of affirmative action. Um, and the Black Lives Matter students on campus held a riot and he was fired and he's been reinstated. Um, so you have a situation where also there's a movement to decolonize the entire canon uh, and we're not just talking about something as ridiculous as these texts being rewritten to bring Chaucer and Shakespeare and John Milton uh, into everyday language. I mean, that's bad enough because it's like studying a foreign language. You need to read these authors in their original old English. But we're talking about getting rid. I mean, I I, I remember getting an email from the administration saying, have you decolonized your syllabi? Which means, have you rid your syllabi of all the European white males. Well, I have I have a PhD in philosophy, and I one of my specializations is um, social contract theory, which means I teach um, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Rousseau and the social contract theorists. These were precursors to liberalism, and they were created. They happen to have been created by dead European white men. Now you can't fudge the history. You can say, "Oh my God, I wish there were a couple of Egyptians and Africans on there," but there weren't, and you can't fudge a history, right? So you you you. I'm going to be out of a job because I, I can't replace them with 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 Aborigin with indigenous peoples because they didn't create social contract theory. So you have this movement to decolonize the minds of young people and to replace it with a kind of indigenous thought. It's also become very commonplace to start classes by admitting that we live on stolen land. No, I'm really radical here. So I'm an outlier. So I, I don't politicize my classrooms at all. I'm very old fashioned. But if I give a talk and somebody starts by saying, why haven't you admitted that? Um, why, why aren't you acknowledging the fact that your talk is occurring in a place where uh, stolen land uh, took place? I said, because I don't believe that's pos- that that's true. I believe that there was a war for resources and that um, the Native Americans... Uh, engage in, in treaties and land purchases and war, and they lost the war. And the superior civilization happened to have won the war, and the technologically inferior civilization lost the war, and they came in second, and we just need to move along. Um, and so th- the humanities are really in a terrible state because they have, above all, thrown out certain ideas, the idea of objective reality, 
they have thrown out the idea of reason and logic as means of really, really adjudicating among truth claims and arbitrating disputes. And feelings, this is the most important thing, feelings have now become the only criterion for adjudicating disputes. And it's whose feelings have greater leverage or who has the, the feelings that can be demonstrably proven to be hurt the most. And uh, because there's no objective reality, because there are because all opinions carry equal worth, including a, a scientist who has a, a body of work that has been honed for years, his 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 work is as carries as equal weight as some person who wants to elevate his sophomoric high school opinions at the level of human knowledge, which just makes the rest of us statisticians of gutter trivia, really. Um, the humanities really are in a in a state of 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 disarray, to say the least. And it's not going to get any better. The reason it's not going to get any better is because there really is an agenda behind all of this. And the agenda is to alter the nature of our republic uh, and to and and the and the spokesperson, the advocates really are quite open about this. That is, they want to make this country into a socialist country. And you see this with the equity movement. That is, we want equal outcomes, uh, which is the which is the the goal of, of any kind of socialist regime. And also, uh, one last thing I want to say is that when you begin the process of correcting errors, um, and that process is labeled as racist because white supremacy now constitutes standards, uh, that is to invoke standards and to invoke conceptual correction as um, proper becomes seen as a form of white supremacy, which is taking place in the academy. That is, if you label something as being wrong or that there are gradations of even right or wrongness, you know, that some something is true, something is truer than others, that that is a form of white supremacy. And so everything becomes racist if it's subject to a form of rational appraisal, which is what is happening in the academy. People are no longer permitted to say, even mathematics has become racist and the STEMs are becoming racist um, because they're, st they're, they're criteria, strict criteria. Those strict criteria are seen as the constructs of imperial white racists who have used those criteria to keep people of color outside the pantheon of the human community, outside the domain of the ethical. Um, it's what I call the over-democratization of the culture spheres um, that Nietzsche talked about years ago. And uh, that's the state of the humanities. Uh, A, one, it's, 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 they've become just cults and, and, and um, bastions of of indoctrination centers and um, a place for professors to become therapists and uh, instead of professors, that is, instead of people who are equipping young people to become autonomous and sovereign agents who can navigate the world on their own. But this this infestation of, of niche work studies like Queering the Bible, which I think is a, is a real course, mm. I, I think you might have mentioned that on your podcast, Will that ultimately be the demise of many universities, though? Because 
word must be spreading that these courses are an epic waste of money, right? Am, am I right there? No, because I think there's a world outside to inherit that sort of nonsense. That not inherit. There's a world outside that facilitates that sort of nonsense. That is, if you go to some of these progressive churches, um, they talk about God as the great they. And if you look at some of these diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in companies, the, in, the language of inclusivity includes things like querying the workplace, querying every sphere of uh, a company's codes and policies. So just today, I was reading the University of, I think it was North Carolina's School of Medicine's um, DEI statement, and um, I have it right here on my phone, but I won't look at it. I'll just, or just recall from memory that part of white supremacy includes individualism and it includes punctuality. And uh, among other things, it includes there being one right way and no, one right answer. Now we're talking about school of medicine, right? So there includes one right answer. So I, I really wish I could optimistically say that I think we're at the gates of hell because I, I wish I could say that there is this zany, crazy, psychotic world called academia where you do have things like querying the Bible and querying the family and all this querying stuff that's going on. And then there's a real world where they'll just get a reality check. But that real world is as crazy that it used to be the case, and I, I, I've been in academia 26 years now, so it used to be the case where I would say to my students, you're going to get a really rough reality check when you go into the real world. But the real world has been so infected by these idea pathogens that they go into the workplace and there are these workshops uh, facilitated by the DIE initiatives where they go from one crazy institution into another crazy institution what I predict is, is, is going to happen, though, is that this is not, it's ultimately not tenable because you cannot cheat and fake reality for too long. There's a broad threshold that, in which you can operate. But ultimately, look, when people start dying on the operation tables, when, when, when you talk about a feminist epistemology, uh, aircrafts don't operate according to a feminist epistemology. People don't, the heart doesn't operate according to you know, a critical race theory paradigm of epistemology, right? So mathematics is mathematics. Logic is logic. The laws of gravity are the laws of gravity. There's no such thing as a, as a black nationalist. I read something about a black nationalist law of gravity recently, and I was like, okay, this is like really crazy. So when people start, <laughs> when people, when people start dropping dead, when people start, when, when, when operating rooms start becoming infected with fungi and, and all sorts of things, I think a lot of people are going to really, really have to suffer. Um, but for right now, we are really in a period of psychosis um, where, you know, just in corporations, you can get fired for misgendering a person where a CEO can get, will fire you for saying that a trans man um, or, or a trans woman is 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 really uh, is really a woman, um, and 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 if you if they do a digital search on you and they find that two years ago you made a tweet that was transphobic, 
Uh, they can deny you a promotion. These are things that are happening right now in the in the outside world, right? So the, we're, we're living in this really psychotic world right now. And but I, but ultimately, I agree with you. In the very very long run, it cannot be sustainable. But I think a great deal of mayhem, a great deal of damage, people's lives are being ruined. And I think there's a silent majority, because I think the majority of people know that this is really crazy, but they're terrified. They're terrified of social ostracism. They are terrified of losing their careers, their jobs, their friends. But I think the silent majority and that young woman who was um, on your show, I can't remember her name, who was speaking out against the the, the trans craziness are going to start speaking up and just rebelling because it's suffocating when you know that your perceptive apparatus is correct and that there are people who are labeling you where the psychotics are labeling you the truth teller as psychotic when you know that a that anyone with an x y chromosomal marker cannot have a child that only someone with an XX chromosomal marker can bear a child. And you know this to be the truth, and you're being told the opposite. Um, this can only really go on for so long. People are going to get sick and tired of this kind of um, wholesale psychosis. But when, when the silent majority will wake up and rebel, uh, I'm, not a really, I'm not a good prognosticator of that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Jason, we're, we're fast running out of time, but I have to I have to get you to well, I want to give you the final word really, uh, but I need to prompt you on on a on on a phrase that you said that uh, stuck out in, in all of that. You said uh, that the word national security threat uh, uh, in terms of some of this 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 stuff. So, just the final word. Talk talk to me about this being a national security threat. Well, it's a national security threat because look, when you talk about um querying the military and when you have the these dei initiatives in the military where our military today has been told explicitly that you cannot use the word mother father breastfeeding you have to use word like chest feeder you have to use the word like parent when you have the abject feminization of the military and the demasculation of the military and you have a situation where we're having a problem um, filling our military with competent personnel, that is a national security threat. And that is a result of the humanities reaching outside of their lanes. And the, the, the humanities are really the transmission belt of culture and because they're the study of man, of the, of, of the human condition. So when I use the word national security threat, I immediately think of the, of, the, of the military. It's not just staying within the humanities. It's spreading to something like the military. It's spreading to something like law enforcement, where um, in the state of Chicago, if you are stealing something that's under $800, you're not going to be prosecuted for it um, because of the nonsense that is going on in the humanities about agency and um the 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 the, the not eviscerating people of their dignity, so all these policies and all these wacky left wing ideas about agency and about uh, personal comportment and so on and so forth are spreading into other disciplines that do threaten our national security. Because if you have a very very woke military where people cannot 
exercise and leverage their skill set because they're paralyzed and they're crippled by these ideologies, that really does threaten our national security in many, many ways. And that's just one. That's just one example um, that I can think of. Well, Jason, before we let you go, we have a final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, uh, what are you reading right now? I am reading a very brilliant book um, by Spencer Clavin. It's called, um, oh my God, it's called How to Save the West. I don't remember the subtitle, but it's called, it's like five, it's, it's just called How to Save the West by Spencer Clavin. He's my editor at the, um, um, the American Mind. It's a brilliant book. I, I much prefer it. I like Douglas Murray. I really like his book. And I like his book. Um, um, what's the name of his book? His book uh, is... The War on the West? The War in the West, yeah. But this book is How to Save the West. And I'm very always wary of these, these, these books that, that have as their titles, How to you know, yeah. do something, because they're always <laughs> utopianistic. But Clavin Spencer's book, How to Save the West, is really quite brilliant. He's a, he's a PhD, he's a classicist, and he takes these, um, these kernels of truths from, from, from various areas of philosophy and, and the classics and he applies them to the current situation. It's like back to the back to basics, back to the old school. It's called How to Save the West by by Clavin Spencer. He's a he's a and he's a beautiful stylist and and and, and brilliant uh, writer. So aside from the antidotes, which I think are brilliant, I just think I hang on to every word and and write certain phrases in my book. That's what I'm reading. I'm definitely going to read that book. Yes, you should. Yeah. Uh, well, Jason, you have a podcast. Uh, please let us uh, let us know what, what's the title of that of that podcast. It's just called the Jason Hill Show, and you can it's on Apple, Spotify, and it's also on. Uh, I think my producer has it on YouTube, and we discuss a lot a lot of issues. Excellent. Well, we encourage our listeners to uh, check you out there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.